Space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. second episode of Wild Weasel, or if you were here for the first episode, then welcome back. Um, thanks to all the people who express support for the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And also thanks to those people who give me feedback. I'm always interested in what listeners think. Um, you can tweet me at Space Rumsfeld, email me at bruce at wargamespace.com, or just post in the comments section on wargamespace.com under each episode. Um, I got some interesting questions about my top five list, including why I would call Twilight Struggle a war game, but not include Titan. Um, I think the main reason is that Twilight Struggle is based on historical conditions. Uh, to me, wargaming is an expression of an interest in real-world events, either historical or speculative, um, but also in the systems that model those events. Um, so even though the Cold War was often a covert conflict, uh, it, it arose out of the same push and pull of historical forces that gave rise to you know the Seven Years' War or the coming battle for Jupiter's moons. But all you can say about Titan is that it might reasonably simulate what some lions and colossi might do in a world made out of concentric hexagons. Um, someone also complained that I had promised a top 10, but only produced a top 5. Uh, I, I think he may have misunderstood what I said. I said that everyone loves top 10 lists, but I also said that in keeping with the spirit of brevity which I, with which I'd like to infuse this podcast, I was going to keep it to a top 5. Um, but fine. Okay. You want five more best games? Okay. Here are my six through 10 very quickly. Okay. Number six, no retreat, Russian front. Um, to me, this is the distillation of Eastern front strategic combat to its absolute essentials. It's a great two-player game in the way that I think the best games are, constantly forcing you into a series of agonizing decisions. Uh, number seven would be Paths of Glory. Um, that's a fantastic game for presenting World War I as a dynamic and interesting conflict. It's interesting that I, I couldn't find a way to place it any higher, even when I expanded my top five to a top ten. Uh, number eight would be Indian Abyss. Uh, I think this is the best coin game, in my opinion, um, because of how distinct the sides are, and also the unique relationship between the government and the AUC, uh, which is the best ally-enemy relationship in all of coin, as far as I'm concerned. Um, number nine is Napoleon at Bay. Now, I'm a huge fan of Kevin Zucker's operational system, and I still think this is the best of them all. And number 10, Sekigahara. Um, I can't believe I'm including another block game. Um, if I'm honest with myself, this is second to Rommel in the Desert as a block game in my mind, partly because it's just not about the Western Desert. Um, and there are so many other games that didn't make the list. So, you know, just a few I thought of were um, Liberty Roads. So that's a game that showed me something new about the liberation of France, uh, just when I thought I didn't need to play any more games on that subject ever. Um, Angola, the uh, original, the MMP reprint. But that's an amazing four-player uh, romp through a little-known but fascinating historical time. Uh, Strike of the Eagle, another little-known historical time. Um, that's a great use of the block system, 
again with the blocks, um, with these command rules that feel very much like everything I've read about the armies of that period. Uh, very tense, too. Love that game. Uh, a Distant Plane. Uh, that's the second best coin game I've played, although I haven't played Liberty or Death yet, so keep that in mind. Um, Churchill. Uh, that's a genius design. Probably will be discussed as a classic in 10 years. Um, Wilderness War. That's one of my favorite card-driven games, which does the French and Indian War perfectly. Uh, Memoir 44. Oh, man, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so kidding about that one. Uh, by the way, the command and color system, uh, which is very much Memoir 44, I think works very well for Ancients, uh, but it's terrible at World War II. And so, uh, no, just not Memoir 44. Don't really enjoy that at all. Um, but uh, Empire of the Sun, um, you know, that's really maybe my number 11, unless Churchill is. <laughs> See, the, the, the nitpicking between card-driven games is crazy. Uh, so uh, there are also a couple of solitaire games I should mention that didn't make the list, uh, but deserve serious consideration from anyone uh, who likes playing against a solitaire system. Uh, those would be uh, D-Day at Omaha Beach and uh, RAF, uh, not coincidentally at all, both designed by John Butterfield. Uh, and also uh, Barbarossa Campaign from Victory Point. That's a great story wrapped up in solitaire clothing uh, from Carl Paradis of No Retreat fame, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, someone asked me about Combat Commander. Uh, it's the number three overall war game on Board Game Geek. Uh, to be honest, I'm not a big fan. Uh, if I'm going to play tactical World War II combat, I'll grab Advanced Squad Leader every time. Um, in my opinion, the environment is just so much richer, both inside and outside the game. So when you go through my top 10, uh, the thing that's fascinating to me is that if you asked me what my favorite system was, I'd probably say Area Impulse. And if you ask me my least favorite system, I'd definitely say Block Games. Yet when you look at my top 10 games, I have only one Area Impulse game, but two Block Games. Feels almost scandalous, huh? So for the news, uh, there isn't much new from the companies I mentioned last time, since it's been only you know a little over two weeks since I covered them. Uh, so this week, I think I'll run through a bunch of companies I didn't talk about last time. Uh, I'll try to cover companies in this kind of round-robin way for a while and just see how that goes. Um, by the way, if you're publishing games and or even designing games and want to let me know about them, uh, please do. Uh, I don't accept advertising, uh, but I'd gladly accept announcements uh, that I can share just uh, you know so people in the hobby can know about it. Um, so let's see. Uh, there's one new thing from GMT Games that I'd like to mention. Uh, Sekigahara, the block uh, slash card game about feudal Japan that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, just made the cut, as they say, on P500. So the third printing should be upon us sometime this year, I hope. Uh, if you're interested, you'll want to catch it at the P500 price of $47 because it seems to increase in price quite a bit on the secondary market when it's out of print, um, as is the case with most good games. Um, if you're not familiar with the game, you can watch a great intro video about it by A Couple of Meeple, uh, which I'll link to. So, uh, on the Kickstarter front, uh, Worthington Games has a campaign going for the next game in its Holdfast series, which is Holdfast North Africa, 1941-42. to uh, There are already two Holdfast games in the series that are published, uh, Holdfast Russia, 1941-42, to and Holdfast Korea, 1950-51. to um, the Holdfast series has gotten generally good reviews. Um, I haven't played it, so I can't comment on it. Uh, there is a short video on the Kickstarter page that purports to teach you the game in three minutes. Uh, so if you have three minutes to spare, plus the time it takes to click on a link, uh, you can find out more for yourself. Um, as of uh, today, March 1st, uh, the campaign had 13 days to run. So $65 gets you a copy of the game, plus free U.S. shipping. And 
free shipping elsewhere, sorry, shipping elsewhere is extra. Um, Next is Operational Studies Group. Uh, they have a pre-order on offer. Uh, for those who don't know, OSG is the longtime labor of Kevin Zucker, uh, who I consider to be the preeminent Napoleonic game designer alive. Um, Kevin has many, many games to his credit, uh, including the aforementioned Napoleon at Bay. Uh, that was in my top 10 uh, games list. And I think his operational designs are really the best games out there that, that cover the Napoleonic Wars at that level. Uh, there's really nothing like them. Uh, he currently has one pre-order on offer, which is Peninsular War II, uh, Barossa, Sabugal, Fuentes de Honoro, and La Albuera for $76 pre-order versus $109 when the game ships. Um, is there a Peninsular War One? Well, actually, no. Um, this is sort of emblematic for OSG. Uh, the webpage information is not always the clearest or most up-to-date, uh, or it appears that way to me. For example, the header on the news page has a big caption at the top that says, August, uh, but down below makes reference to offers that begin and end in January. Uh, so when you look at it in February or March, it has expired information, uh, but that's still more recent than you expect, but it's, it's still unhelpful. Uh, so I follow them because Kevin is such a great designer and OSG really produces such high quality products. Um, I met Kevin once at Origins many years ago, and he strikes me as an incredibly thoughtful and contemplative person. I just, at least that's the impression I got, um, which somehow fits for me with this idea of a master Napoleonic uh, sage of a designer. Um, there's also an absolutely hilarious article in the general, volume 17, number six, uh, when Kevin was interviewed by Alan Moon as part of a Meet the Designer series that uh, uh, Alan did when he was an assistant editor to Don Greenwood. Uh, it's worth finding and reading. Uh, Anyway, getting back to games, OSG has a new version of their classic a Napoleon at Leipzig game for sale. Uh, they have Napoleon's Last Gamble uh, and some combo discount offers. So you can check them out at napoleongames.com. Uh, just turn the volume down because you will get uh, some French singing at the beginning. Um, speaking of Napoleon, uh, there's a company called Europa Simulazioni that has published a few interesting designs, including 1812, The Invasion of Russia, and all is lost save honor uh, about the Italian wars in the early 16th century. Uh, I think they're specializing in games in which there is some Italian involvement, judging from the games they've released uh, and the fact that their website is italianwars.net. Um, I first learned about the company by watching Enrico Viglino, uh, a.k.a. Callendale's review of 1812, which he described as, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I think, a competitive game that forces you into a series of agonizing decisions. Um, he didn't like that kind of thing, but I sure do. Uh, Europa Simulazioni do have one game available now for pre-order. Uh, it's called 1813 Napoleon's Nemesis. Uh, it costs 25 euros, and I think shipping to the U.S. is an additional 14 euros. So you got 39 euros for the whole thing. Uh, go to italianwars.net to find out more about their games. So for even more Napoleonics, uh, Decision Games recently reprinted the old Waterloo monster Wellington's Victory, uh, which was first published by SPI and then again by TSR after TSR bought SPI. Um, that's $160 for like 2,000 counters and four maps. Um, they also have subsequent games in the D-Day At series, including Tarawa and Peleliu. Um, and uh, oh yeah, one thing I find interesting is the fact that they have three separate game magazines. So Decision Games publishes Strategy and Tactics, World at War, and Modern War. Uh, those are all magazines that are all focused on separate time periods. Um, I've always been a little leery of magazine games, i got to say, since the deadlines that drive publication seems to, they just seem to be inimical to proper rules development and playtesting, um, as I'm sure these pressures can lead to some less-than-ideal situations, uh, shall we say. Um, I understand that. I mean, if you've got to get a magazine out, you got to get a magazine out, but then, you know, if the game's not ready, what are you going to do? Um, 
But I do like the fact that there are more outlets for ideas like uh, things like New World Order Battles. Uh, you can check that out at decisiongames.com. Now, High Flying Dice Games. Uh, this is Paul Rohrbaugh's company uh, that publishes what might be called desktop publishing designs. Um, they do require some countermounting and the like, uh, although Paul does offer mounted counters for an additional price. Uh, you still do have to cut them out. Um, but the upside is that the pricing is very reasonable, and as a result, you can pick up some good games for pretty cheap. Um, and the graphics are, I mean, they're good. Uh, they're they're much better than, you know, these just the old desktop publishing designs. He does have artists that do these things. It's just there's some assembly required. Um, High Flying Dice Games does also have a couple of professional editions uh, that uh, come boxed with die-cut counters. Um Paul seems to like publishing games on lesser-known topics, uh, which is great, and with simple rule sets. So that's kind of his niche. Um, he also has two of the best game names that I've seen recently. Uh, namely, uh, the first one is Blonde He Was and Beautiful, uh, which is a reference to a line from the Divine Comedy uh, about Manfred, King of Sicily, and Long Cruel Woman, uh, which is a reference to I'm not really sure what. Um, Blonde He Was and Beautiful uh, covers a couple of battles of the Middle Ages. Uh, that's uh, Benevento and Tagliacozzo while Long Cruel Woman covers the assault on fire support base Marianne uh, in Vietnam by the Viet Cong in 1971. Now, the best thing about that game is that while the caption on the website reads Long Cruel Woman, uh, the game cover, as it is depicted on the website, reads Long Cool Woman. I'm not sure which one I like better. Uh, But since this game is still in development, I'm hoping they figure out that discrepancy before they ship it. So go to hfdgames.com. Now, uh, Revolution Games. Uh, This is Roger Miller's company. It's a small press with a lot of Ziploc bag games, uh, but one particular very nice deluxe edition of Jack Green's Iron Bottom Sound. Uh, This is listed as Iron Bottom Sound 3 because it's technically the third edition of a game that was first released by Quarter Deck Games in 1981. Um, For those who don't know, uh, Jack Green is a hobby legend. He's responsible for such efforts as the second edition of Bismarck, uh, as well as numerous other designs, such as Destroyer Captain and Norway 1940, which are both well-reviewed when they came out. Um, Jack is, as I understand it, um, pretty much a walking naval warfare encyclopedia, and Iron Bottom Sound war, uh, won the Charles S. Roberts Award uh, for Best Initial Game Release when it came out in, in 1981, and now it's available in a beautiful new box edition from Revolution Games uh, with revised rules. So I don't know how long it's going to stay in print. Uh, so just go to www.revolutiongames.us for more information or check the links on the Wild Weasel number two page. Today, I'm going to talk to uh, my friend and colleague, Tom Chick. Tom and I have written a lot together. Um, We have agreed and disagreed about many games. Um, Tom is quite a knowledgeable game critic. Uh, He really is quite a renaissance man of gaming, and he actually happens to have once been a war gamer. And uh, I think he's got some dirty war gaming secrets to share with us today. Tom, how are you? I am fine, thank you, and I'm I'm willing to finally come clean with these secrets. I've come to terms with them, and uh, I'm here to admit them publicly. Okay, excellent. Well, it's uh, I'm glad that you finally uh, decided to uh, to not to not fight this uh, whole thing anymore. <laughs> uh, I because it, it, people who play a lot of different kinds of games generally don't play war games, do they? I mean, war games. You people, as I like to refer to you, mm-hmm, t- yeah. tend to stick to your own kinds of games. Yeah, thanks, Ross Perot. Uh, <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thing about uh, war gamers that uh, we seem to stick to one thing, um, whether it be, and, in, in, and it often doesn't even extend uh, between board games and computer games. Like people like one one kind or the other, and they, they look down on the other kind. So, um, but I, I'm just curious about, the reason that I uh, wanted to talk to you was, uh, you know, you, you do have... Uh, that I believe you have a little bit of that wargaming gene in you, and once once upon a time you did want to know what an F4 Phantom II's loadout was, um, even though you may not uh, care so much now. But um, so I want to just ask you a few questions because I'm curious about the, how the how sort of the maybe the non wargamer or the lapsed wargamer mind works. So um, so here <clears throat> I've got three questions for you. So the first one is pretty simple. Let's say let's say you're looking for a war game. For some reason you just decided you know you're you're you've you've played enough. Um, um, whatever, war dogs or uh, smart dogs or any one of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's one of those shooters. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, what are they? Yeah, shoot people. But yeah, right. Let's like let's say as an anthropological exercise, I right. kind of want to see how how you people live. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, what would be the mo the single most important factor that you would take into account when you uh, were looking for to, to deciding to buy it? Okay, I say this with no amount of shame because it will compromise what I feel are far more important parts of a good design. Mm -hmm. But what I look for in a war game, which is also how I became a war gamer, by the way, okay. is the ability to play by myself. Oh, my goodness. For a couple of reasons, okay. one of which is uh, I, I have a very healthy regular board gaming group here, mm -hmm. and we play lots of different things. But of these maybe, I think there's a dozen people, maybe one and a half of them would play a war game with me, an mm -hmm. actual bona fide I want to say hexes, but I know they're not always hexes. Mm -hmm. They're an actual bona fide war game. Okay. Um, so as someone who doesn't really have opponents, that, oddly enough, is is crucial to me. Mm -hmm. And it almost, almost, not quite, trumps things like uh, subject matter, theme, mechanics. Um, and it's how I came to, to war gaming. Uh, when I was a kid, I had an Apple II, and back in those days, you didn't get to look at Steam's catalog of 5,000 games and then pick the one you were going to play on any given day. Sure. You played whatever came out. Yeah. And I remember a game by Gary Grigsby called Mech Brigade. Mm. And at that age, I would not have been a war gamer. I could not have cared less about, I think it was like, what if the Soviets roll into Western Europe? I mean, sure. that was the, the subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a game I could play on my Apple II. And it was a system that I learned. And in learning it, I became interested in the difference between a BMP-1 and a BRDM. Yep. You know, mm -hmm. what are all these sure. bits of hardware? Uh, and, and actually, I had previously an interest in that approach for making model airplanes. Um, hmm. So as a kid, when you build model airplanes, and at first you're wanting to build them because, hey, look how weird this P-38 looks with its twin fuselage. That's, right. that's crazy. I want to build that. Mm -hmm. um, look at these gold wings on a Corsair. Hmm. Those, those kind of things hook you. But then in putting them together, you can't help but read about them and find out things about them and then discover, hey, this boring-looking P-51 was an amazing piece of engineering and it made a huge difference in the war. You know, this this B-17, which – this majestic big thing, like, you know, the stories that, that come up around those missions, mm -hmm. you can't escape those if you're building B-17 models. Right. Um, so I had in me this predilection for what I would call hardware porn. Hmm. Um, you know, military hardware porn. What what things can an F4 Phantom carry under under its wings? Uh, so having that, 
needing a solitaire game, something because mm-hmm. even back then with an Apple II, you know, I didn't I didn't play board games. I, I knew there were some board games, war games that I could play, but I was mainly on that Apple II. This thing called Mech Brigade, I boot it up, I learn it, I get interested in the hardware, and I don't need to press my friends into service. Hmm. So these days, as someone who plays a lot of board games, that's important to me. And I don't get you – this is something that that is still weird. I don't get this duo, this this idea of playing a solitaire, playing both sides of a two-player game. Uh-huh. And I know that's something that wargamers do a lot to explore the mechanics. Um, you know, like your, your Bien Dien Phu series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you played against yourself, and that was a great visual gag. But I just don't get that because that's something that, that war gamers do in earnest that I have no desire to do. I, I need to fight against a system. I need to be able to prevail. Um, so oddly enough, that's the single most important thing to me is solitaire support. Interesting. Okay. Now you have <clears throat> you have a term for it that you use the solo duo tear, and and you would you would apply that to anything in which you sort of have to, you play one side and then you just kind of turn around to pretend that you don't know what your other side was thinking. Is that, is that right? Right. Exactly. Because I, you know, when I'm playing a war game, I have, when I, when I'm playing one side of a war game, I want to have a plan and I want to have something that I intend to do that I hope doesn't get foiled by the other guy. And if I then become that other guy, I know exactly what that is and I know how to foil it. And I just, I just don't get that. Uh, Okay. As a way to poke at mechanics, sure, fair enough. Mm-hmm. But as a way to actually enjoy a forty, fifty, sixty dollar product that you've mm-hmm. bought, mm-hmm. I, I don't get that. Okay. Yeah. Now, how about how about games? Because this is this is happening a lot now. Um, games with bots, like for example, the um, there's been a lot of work done on the coin series and you know Fire in the Lake, which uh, I believe you have. Um, uh, spoiler. Uh, comes with bots now do you think there's a difference uh between a solitaire game and a game that's uh designed for um you know regular multiplayers but uh has a bot uh, system included yeah fantastic question i would say no there's no difference the bot does fine for me it's like i said i just need a system Mm -hmm. that pushes back at me and uh what what gmt has done with their bots uh someone recently asked me they were like i know you have fire in the lake are you gonna are you gonna get rid of that are you gonna sell it and I was like, no, no way, because that, that to me, that can be a great solitaire game. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's move on to question number two. Um, and I'm curious, I, and I actually, I think I already know the answer to this. So I'm, I'm just going to, before you answer, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to kind of give my guess, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so I'll just, I'll just, I'll guess. So, so <clears throat> let's say all other things being equal. So let's say, you know, price, complexity, physical component, quality, clarity of the rules, everything is just fantastic. It's just all... Very affordable, just exactly whatever complexity you're looking for. Um, the components are just amazing. You've never seen components that good. The, the rules, I mean, you could eat off them. They're so clean. Um, but the only thing that is uh, different is the historical time period. There's all these different. You can basically have any historical time period you want. What time period would you go reaching for? The first thing you'd go and you'd go reaching for. And I'm, I'm going to guess that it would be one of two things. It would either be D-Day or Ew. the Battle of the Bulge. I think oh. it's probably one of those two things. <laughs> um, you're close because World War II, I think of uh, – I don't know that this is going out on a limb, but I would say World War II is the greatest human endeavor in the history of mankind just mm-hmm. as far as how it consumed the globe, how it advanced technology, how it changed the face of the, the, the geopolitical realities in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh 
just World War II is still amazing to me. Uh, however, I'm so bored of Europe. You know, I couldn't care. They're not even just the Eastern and Western Front, by the way. All of that is not the least bit interesting to me anymore. Um, so historical time period, yes, World War II, still super interesting to me. Um, and again, that goes back to me as a kid building models from, you know, I, jets were okay, uh, biplanes, yeah, cute. But it was these World War II fighters and bombers that really, for whatever reason, captured my imagination. Hmm. Uh, so World War II, but – and I was thinking what's the commonality between these? I find very interesting North Africa and the Pacific Theater hmm, okay. because they had unique demands that largely had to do with supply constraints, I think. Uh, in North Africa, of course, because of the terrain, because of the supply lines, uh, there's just there, – there, there, there are restraints on what you can do and how it unfolded and, and what happened in North Africa. I love seeing that modeled. Um, mm -hmm. And the same with the Pacific Theater. Uh, you can't just – you know, the, the island hopping in the Pacific Theater puts limits on how big a battle you can have and who's fighting and where they're fighting and what the nature of the fighting is and the importance of air power and sea power on that fighting. Mm -hmm. um, so World War II, pretty much anywhere but Europe. Okay. So Burma would be something that uh, you would want. Sure. To oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Burmese yeah. Theater. Well, there's a great game coming out uh, called Nemesis by uh, Kim Conger. So uh, when that comes out, hopefully there'll be a bot for that. Um, I do want to call you out, though. I, I really have to call you out. You and, and um, you know, you did, you, you're at least consistent. You went out and you purchased a game um, called D-Day at Palelu. And, okay. oh, my goodness, you not only did you buy that game, but you bought two other items that I, I I have to wonder whether you may not actually be like a war gamer sleeper agent. Yeah, here uh, comes my dirty little secrets. I think these yeah, are the dirtiest of my yeah, dirty little yeah, secrets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my understanding, and this is, you know, this is only what our, you know, what our sources have told us is that you not only bought a big piece of glass, not plexiglass, but actual glass to place over your uh, paper map from DD at Palelu, and then you got something called a counter clipper. Is that true? It is. Both are true. Oh, uh, my goodness. And I did them without reservation. Like, I knew once. So D-Day at Peleilu, uh, it's it is Pacific Theater. So right away, I don't have that obstacle of, oh, God, another European theater game. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was super proud to get it. I was super eager to get it. Uh, I loved reading the rules. I loved so many of the mechanics. The moment you showed me, I think it was D-Day at Omaha Beach. Mm-hmm. The map with all the little dots and the yeah. way you draw the, the cards and look at the color for which dots are engaged in combat. Right. The moment I saw that, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Uh, but Omaha Beach, I'm out of here. Mm. Uh, so then when I found out there was a Pacific Theater one, which to be fair, mechanically is not terribly different from Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. But it, sure. it's a more advanced – I mean it's a later iteration of the, the, the system. Right. So there are some improvements there. Um but so once you showed me the system, I was super interested in, in the mechanics. And then once I realized there was a Pacific theater, I was there. All the obstacles melted. Oh, and then once, of course, it was solitaire. Any any obstacle I might have to, to wanting to own this crumbled away. Uh, so I bought it. And who can play on a paper map when the paper can just like flip up or yeah, blow away or whatever? Crazy, yeah. yeah. So you need that glass to hold it down. Mm -hmm. uh, and once also you showed me the effect of a cut of a counter with the corners clipped versus one without the corners clipped, mm -hmm. you can't go back. You can't unsee that. No, uh, no, no. It's, yeah, yeah, you... Once you realize how unsightly those little bitty 
crumbles of paper are at the corner of a normally punched counter. That's terrible. Yeah, who can tolerate that sort of thing? Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. So. So, uh, so that that's my most recent board game purchase, and uh, I I'm quite happy with it, and it does make me think. You know what? Maybe I maybe I am a war gamer. Yeah, that's hey, you need to consider that. I think that's uh, something you should you should re- revisit. Um, <clears throat> so the last question that I have for you is, let's this maybe was an- answered by the previous two, but just imagine it. Imagine this. So you're sitting, um, you know, in uh, you know, let's say let's say you're waiting uh, at the French Laundry in San Francisco. You know, you've made reservations, but for some reason the Mater D, uh, he's just. Uh, You've got to stand around for a little bit. Um, he's very sorry, um, but there are some other people that happen to um, happen to be uh, waiting as well. And they, it seems like they're talking about a war game, and they're playing. They're really excited about a war game that they're playing against each other. And turns out uh, that you are hanging out with them, kind of just just waiting for waiting for your tables. What would they be saying? If if what would what would be the thing that you would most be attracted to uh, in their conversation that you would say, "Oh gosh, I've got to go home and I've got to um, I've got to look this game up and I've got to order it immediately." So yeah, it would be you know the subject matter, some uh, the solitaire support, uh, but I, I do love as someone who looks at a lot of different games, I do love things that have unique mechanics. So if I was to hear someone say, and this is what I love about your Denbian Foo series, if I was to hear somebody highlight a specific mechanic or something unique that it does. Uh, I would be very curious, almost just from an intellectual perspective, you know, what's new about this? What makes this different from your your typical, hey, stack up chits on a hex mm-hmm. and then move it and check the CRT? Mm-hmm. You know, anything that does – that has a unique approach around that or that has some unique design twist. Uh, I see. If it did something in the design that was unique or different or revolutionary or even subversive, mm-hmm. I, I would want to see that. Okay. Interesting. Well, then you're going to need to wait for the next uh, Dien Bien Phu video because I got a lot of subversion to uh, subject you to there. So I look forward to that. And I've written down Nemesis, uh, which I'm afraid I'm going to end up actually buying some goofy sci-fi novel or something. Well, you can do I that did... too. You can compare them, see which one you know works better. Uh, Surely so. it's called something like Nemesis: colon, The The Struggle in Burma, right? Right. You know? That Struggle in Burma dash uh, Britain versus Japan. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm writing like, all of this yeah, down. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but you know, you you actually know Kim Conger because you, I believe, are excited about his uh, upcoming game, uh, Heart uh, Heart of Darkness. I am. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, and uh, you should be because his games are his games are fantastic. I actually, um, I well, there's there his game Tonkin. I'm just reading the rules uh, again and just fascinated by how. No, I can't get anybody to play it with me. Even my. Um, even, See? Yeah. Even even my, my well, we just we just played actually. We just played uh, Next War India versus Pakistan uh, yesterday at the uh, at the game store. I had a great game, um, but um, that's a little more conventional. That that I think Kim Conger might be a little too subversive even for them. I, I wonder if Kim Conger is going to get arrested by the uh, by the authorities one of these days because he's just such a subversive designer. Yeah, the wargaming police are probably looking for him. Yeah, they're looking for him. So yeah, well, well, we should uh, we should probably skedaddle in, in case they come looking for us. But Tom, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this uh, little chat. Thank you, Bruce. Good night. To read more of Tom Chick's thoughts on gaming, make sure you visit www.quarter2three.com, or just go and click on the link on the Wild Weasel page.
I was struck recently by the map to a game that hadn't been on my radar at all, namely U.S. Civil War by Mark Simonich. Um, but I was struck in a different way than you might think when you hear someone remarking on a map. Now, I'm not a big American Civil War buff, which is probably why I didn't pay much attention to a game that um, was on GMT's P500, um, and I just didn't notice. Um, but someone in our local game group picked it up and invited someone to try it out with them. We sent out a global email, and uh, I said, oh, hey, that sounds interesting, so I agreed to do that. Um, but only then uh, did I download the rules and do some research while I was preparing to play, and I was a bit surprised to see that the design was by Mark Simonich, because uh, even though he designed one of the truly great card-driven games uh, that I know of in Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage, I've always thought of Mark as really a very gifted map artist rather than a designer. I'm not sure why that is. Um, but that's strange because, because I remember writing a check to a company called Rhino Games way back in 1991 uh, to buy something called The Legend Begins. Uh, and this was Mark Simonich's company. Uh, he had made a game about the North African campaign in 1941. Um, the game had some very interesting combat and chip pull mechanics. Um, but I think the reason that I remember Mark as being such a gifted uh, map designer is that I remember being so impressed by the map art. Um, you know, I had Africa Corps and Panzer Armee Africa and, you know, campaigns for North Africa and all the rest. Um, but I'd never seen a map of North Africa this good. You know, this was like all the things that I had read in books like Robert Crisp's uh, Brazen Chariots. Uh, it was right there in hexagonal form, you know, like bleak desert, faint tracks, uh, dramatic escarpments. Um, it was just done in a way that showed a really talented graphic designer at work. Um, and I bought his campaign to Stalingrad game the next year. Uh, unfortunately, Rhino Games folded, um, and um, Mark uh, moved on to working, uh, doing more things, things for GMT. Uh, and while I saw proof of Mark's design skills with, as I said, Avalon Hills, Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage, which is an amazing game, really, really is. Um, it, his output of maps for GMT just it quantitatively just outstripped his design portfolio. And I also have to say that I, I didn't, I wasn't following his design so much. He had some things like. Uh, um, there was a game about, uh, there was a France 1940 game he made. There was some other stuff. Um, anyway, but no, no American Civil War stuff, interestingly enough. So um, you can imagine that uh, I expected a graphically superb product when I uh, showed up at the game store. My buddy had U.S. Civil War all set up for us. Um, but that's actually not what I'm talking about here, not the graphic uh, quality. Sure, I mean, the, the map looks very nice. Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful map. But uh, it's actually what happened while we were playing that impressed me so much. So... Um, now, as I said, I, I'm not a huge American Civil War buff. You know, sure, I, I went through a period when I was younger, um, when I read some Civil War histories. Uh, I did some book reports in school, such things like that. <laughs> you know, I was pretty young. Um, but I don't think this period of interest lasted much past our class trip to the Gettysburg battlefield, um, back when schools did that. Do they still do that? Uh, anyway, um, I don't know. Uh, anyway, if you look at my bookshelves, um, I have a much more on the World War II Eastern Front North Africa, Pacific War, even Napoleonics, frankly, than I do about the war between the states. Um, the one thing I never really understood about the Civil War was the war in the West uh, and in Kentucky, Tennessee, along the Mississippi. Um, why did Grant spend so much time trying to outflank and, and besiege Get uh, Vicksburg, uh, traveling down the Mississippi? It was very nebulous to me. Uh, so imagine, my, my surprise, I open up the rule book, and what do I find? I find a wonderful set of designer's notes. The, that answered just this question, uh, but it's from a theoretical standpoint. But uh, I want to I want to mention what uh, Mark said. 
I'll just quote a paragraph here, okay? Um, Mark says, under Grant's Mississippi campaign, he says, The game system also had to show why any player would attack Vicksburg the way Grant did. Why not just march down from Memphis and attack the city by land? And most players should do that if the Confederate player lets them, but a good CSA player will have cavalry ready to cut Grant's supply line at every opportunity. If that happens, then Grant's method starts to make sense. Uh, it's interesting to me that this is something that Mark thought about and then tried to play test. Um, it's, it's, he's clearly thinking about the way he wants the campaign to develop. So fine, what does this mean in practice, though? Well, so you have to know a few things, which is that the supply system in the game is both permissive and restrictive, depending on how you're getting supplied. So river supply is very generous as long as you control the river. But unless you're talking about a large river like the Mississippi, uh, which Mark classifies as a navigable river, uh, you can block river supply by building entrenchments. So the catch is that entrenchments disappear if they aren't manned by at least one strength point. So that's important. So uh, my gaming buddy and I played the 1861 scenario, and I played the Confederates. This is the first time I'd played the game. And uh, on the first turn, I invaded Kentucky. So the Union responded by trying to drive me out. Made sense. Uh, Kentucky turned into a Union state at that point. And what ensued was this incredible dance of like, marches and countermarches. They all depended on supply lines tied to either rivers or rail lines, uh, with towns being these uh, special kind of depots. Uh, and, and since my buddy was playing the Union, he had to establish river supply as he pushed into Tennessee. And so he went after, well, Fort Donaldson at Island Number 10, which if you know anything about uh, Civil War history, that was um, you know, those were very important. Uh, and he mentions those in the rule book. Uh, and then we spent action after action building uh, entrenchments, moving units, trying to cut off, outflank each other, uh, and then having to leave units behind to, to keep the entrenchments banned. Uh, it wasn't pretty, um, but it was very enjoyable. Um, and, and part of that enjoyment was because the historical problems felt so accurately recreated. Um, and you know for, for historical war gamers, that's important. So you didn't feel straightjacketed in any sense. Uh, but if you chose to play historically, then you're going to have run into historical problems, which is very, uh, I think it's very laudable for a, a war game, a historical war game to do. Um, but the important thing to mention is that it was not just the mechanics, but it was the map itself. And so what I mean is, if you look in the rule book, uh, you'll see that Mark has a whole page of explanations and clarifications about certain spaces. Uh, he certainly clearly just spent a lot of time thinking about how to draw the map. Uh, and each special case, he has a page of them, they seem to be especially uh, carefully considered decision. And I'll just read you one example. So he says, Vicksburg and the Yazoo River. Uh, the Yazoo River does not run along the Vicksburg hex alongside. This is intentional. I did that so a fort at Vicksburg could not control the Yazoo River. Grant used the Yazoo River as his supply base for the siege after his end run around Vicksburg. Consider the hex above Vicksburg as the Chickasaw Bluffs. The Confederate player should guard that hex with an entrenched SP to scare away any Union invasion there. Um, I, I just think that that's remarkable that he has all these thoughts about how he, actually how he's creating every hex. So uh, I got to wondering how this unique kind of map creation, um, you know, is there a predecessor for this? Uh, how unique does it really feel to me? Or is it just unique? to hear a map designer talk about it so directly in his notes. Um, and so this got me thinking about war games as things that provide an insight into history. And that's what I had mentioned earlier about Twilight Struggle versus Titan, uh, and which is what I think one of our desires as historical war gamers is, to, to learn something about the conflict maybe through our you know engagement with the game. Um, 
And I've always heard people say how they like games because they uh, describe battles through their maps, <laughs> as opposed to some very annoying history books uh, that show a lot less than they say, uh, which is that they have um, you know, very poor maps to support the text. You are always trying to sort of create these pictures in your mind, and you're like, well, why can the author just give me a really good map of what he's talking about? So... Um, and that happens a lot, um, but I also felt that this was this is kind of a superficial observation, um, or in any case, it's it's sort of an advantage that doesn't have anything to do with the game itself. I mean, it's just a consequence of having a map with pieces on it, um, and you could duplicate that graphically, right? Just make a whole bunch of sequential maps, um, or just follow historical out- outline by pushing the forces around without needing to know any rules. Um, but you know. With U.S. Civil War, you know, the kind of symbiosis of the map and mechanics that I think Mark Simonich achieved just shows me, again, how much more robust games are than I could ever imagine. So I know that Mark has credited both Eric Lee Smith's Civil War and Mark Herman's For the People as inspirations uh, and systems on which he drew. And and by the way, Mark is extremely generous with uh, credit in his designer's notes. He even notes that uh, he adapted an idea from uh, Rick Young's Europe Engulfed. Um, but I don't think I'm slighting uh, any of those designs uh, when I say that I think Mark really achieved something unique here. Um, I mean, I just I haven't seen this before, where every hex on the map is there for a reason, and history plays through the rules to show you why. Um, and I think that's probably something you need a great map artist to do, um, and probably a great designer. And I, I think it's Mark has pretty much proven that he's, he's the former, and he might be... Uh, Maybe showing that he really is the latter as well. So that's it for this time. Uh, I've gotten a few new games in the past uh, couple months that I'm eager to try, but unfortunately, uh, my game time is pretty limited right now, so I probably won't be getting any of them to the table before the next podcast. But uh, I am playing some things on Vassal, uh, including a couple of playtest games of Brian Train's Colonial Twilight, which is the uh, coin game about uh, the uh, Algerian War of Independence. And I'm also hoping to try Liberty or Death soon as well. So that's a couple of coin games there. Um, Anyway, join me next time for more wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel number two.